Good morning, everyone. It's the last week of Ben's sabbatical. Uh, so I think it's the last time I'm going to say I'm executive pastor. And our lead pastor is on. And he's coming back this, this week. This week, September starts this week. And there's even a remote possibility that he might come back two days early. Uh, and so we'll see him again soon. Um, we're going to take a pause this week in going on with our Grace Gifts series. As I was preparing um, this week, I realized that we were in the middle of what's been quite a difficult week um, for some in the, in the Grace family. And so we're going to pick up on the gift of pastor next week and the gift of teacher the week after. And what that actually is going to do is it's going to mean that Ben's going to be back for two weeks and he's not going to get a chance to preach. He's going to have to sit and listen to myself week one and Darrell week two. But I'm sure there are many other things um, that he's going to get to do. It's been a difficult week because earlier on in the week, how many of you know Cleve, Cleve Payne? Uh, Earlier on in the week, Cleve uh, heard the terribly sad, sudden, unexpected news that his daughter Emily um, had died. And it's always hard for parents to bury their kids, right? Um, And so, but if you add the hardship of a parent having to bury a kid to the sudden, unexpected nature of it, that's compounded, that's somehow extra difficult to deal with. And how many of you knew Jessica T? Jessica had been struggling with cancer, the side effects of cancer for a long time. She passed away also earlier this week. Leaves behind her husband, Ryan, who's generally sitting on, husband of 11 years, Ryan, who was sometimes sitting on that side, three kids, Sarah. Silas, who's here today, insisted that he was going to still come to church, and he's in middle school, I think, at the moment, and Rowan, who's 10. But they aren't the only people that have lost loved ones, maybe not this week, but recently, if I ask for a show of hands, Zach, Ryan, Steve Rogers, Edith, who's headed back to the country um, that she was with with a husband of 25 years, George, Kimberly Schwartz. Kimberly, are you here today? Steve Gunning, Ali and Clyde, Deborah Brock, Jacob Pline. If I had a show of hands, how many of you have lost a friend or a loved one in about the last year or so recently? More than a year, but it feels like it's fresh still. My own mother passed away um, earlier on this year on March the 25th. She'd been suffering from pancreatic cancer. She'd been fit and healthy and strong when we saw her in November last year, but turned into barely anything in such a short period of time. Couldn't feed herself, couldn't walk, couldn't do anything. And to see that deterioration was very hard. I remember when we went to see her in Jamaica and people were telling me, you're in Jamaica, you should be on the beach doing things. I'm like, I can't be on the beach because my mother's dying. And even though we had images of the most beautiful seven-mile beach on the island. Somehow it just didn't feel right to be on there experiencing fun whilst she was deteriorating at such a rapid rate. And one of the things that we realize when we confront death and the reality of death in our lives, which is why I wanted to talk about this 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 morning, is death, death has a sting, right? 
Death's sting is real. We can't pretend that death's sting isn't real. Death hurts, doesn't it? If it's sudden, it hurts more. If it's unexpected, it hurts more. If it's people that we love a lot, it hurts more. And that's real. And grieving is real. And loss is real. The empty bed, if it's your spouse, the person that you've looked at for years and turned across to the left or the right when they're not there anymore, the chair at the table. Many of us keep, as I do, the phone numbers of the people that have passed on still in our phones. Not that I'm planning on ringing any of them, but I don't want to forget them. My mother's still in my phone. My friend who was 50-something when he died in England, who I went to college with, died young, still in my phone. Weirdly, Ralph Abernathy III, the son of the great Ralph Abernathy, his son is still in my phone. And many other people are still in my phone. Brother Grace is still in my phone. How many of you remember Brother Grace? It's something weird that, I know it's my weird odd thing, Jessica is still in my phone. I'm never going to take her name out, and so on and so forth. And maybe we don't do that because it's our way of, of remembering them. But even though death has a sting, and it hurts, and it's grieving is real, and loss is real, it's inevitable, right? Death is inevitable. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, every one of us is going to die. And death is somewhat more obvious and readily experienced for people who are medical workers and EMT people. You experience and face death almost every day. If you work in wards where people are rescued, being rescued from the edge of death, you see it every day. You, I don't know how you do it. You go to the scenes of accidents and you don't know what you're going to expect and you see things that are probably too terrible to talk about, right, Avery, and any other EMT or emergency workers here. Death isn't pretty in those situations and, and very rarely ever is. But we don't live in an era of high infant mortality where if we, have, we had to have 18 kids so that 10 of them would make it to adulthood. That's been the way that our society was, right? And if we're living through seasons of COVID and death becomes more obvious and readily experienced, it's something that we experience more often. Death becomes something that we have to talk about more. If we were living through the Second World War, imagine what that would be like. And maybe there are some of you here who did. What that's like, and even more so, it's not just the folks that are sending people overseas to, to fight, but imagine what it was like to be in Europe in the Second World War. And I'm not just talking about when you have to send your kids away on trains to go and stay with strangers because people are dropping bombs on your house. Um, but we live in an era where if we're not careful, we don't talk about death enough until it just creeps up on us and then we're suddenly having to talk about it. Another thing death does, not only stings, is inevitable, but it redefines family. My own sisters were not getting on. I have four of them, and it was weird. Every time I would call one, I'd have to think, these two aren't speaking to these two, or these three aren't speaking to this one, or this one isn't speaking to these three, or actually no, none of them are speaking to each other. But somehow, death has brought them all together, including the one that stepped up to really lead the family. And so death redefines families. Sons have to lead in the place of fathers. And sometimes the kids have to move to other parents. And even for Jesus on the cross in John 19, 26 to 27, there's a moment when he looks down on the cross and he sees his mother 
and he sees John, I think, John, who's writing the book of John, the disciple who he loves, and Jesus says to him, woman, behold your son, son, John, behold your mother, and it says from that day on, John takes her to his house, and so sometimes the reimagination of family has to happen because of death. And something else that's important whenever we experience death is that memories matter, right? Memories matter a whole lot. And I ask you, when you think of the loved ones, the friends, the family members that you've lost, when you look through a lens of love, when you look backwards through a lens of love, I'm not talking about when you look back and the things you hated about them. Because I'm actually sure that if you think about it, the lens of love turns the things that you hated into things that you now look back with fondness. If they were people who didn't squeeze the toothpaste tube properly or who, who left their socks on the floor, you probably miss the socks on the floor, right? When you look back through the lens of love. What do you remember about the people you love? Present tense, still love. Because love somehow transcends the grave, doesn't it? It's greater than the grave. What do you remember with fondness? My own early memories of my mother were traveling to school with her. She was a principal in school, and she... It wasn't fair to have your mother as your school teacher um, because it meant that your discipline was, was permanent. You were disciplined at home. You were disciplined in front of your classmates. And so if I did something wrong to Darrell, Darrell would go and tell my mother. My mother would discipline me in front of the whole class. And so your friends knew that this was easy sport, right? <laughs> How to get Douglas in trouble, go tell his mother that he did something that he hadn't done. You would never have done that, would you, Darrell? <laughs> I remember my father. My father died in 2013. Weirdly, my father died age 94. My mother died age 94. Um, and um, I remember he was a baker. I remember as young as I was, he, there was this pit. He had a top oven, a bottom oven in the bakery, um, something that he bought way before people were buying businesses in the UK. His, 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 the person he worked for was retiring, and he offered him the business. He bought the business. It meant that he worked virtually six days a week, going to work sometimes at midnight, to work all the way through to 6 p.m. The, other, the next day. He taught me the discipline of work and the importance of work. And I was talking to Anna about how, how I used to listen to them talking to each other in the morning on the Sunday, the only day that they had at home when they weren't working. But I remember trying to get bread out of the oven and there was the lower oven you had to get into a pit because it was so low and trying to get bread out and, and this thing would burn your hands. And so he had hands that had been calloused over the years because of, of picking up hot bread. And it meant that when our friends were around for dinner, he would deliberately pass hot plates to them just, to, just because we were all experiencing this experience of, of the hot plate being passed with these bread calloused hands to the friend who had no hope of not dropping it. <laughs> I remember them taking us to church twice every Sunday. I remember my poor father having to wait in the car for four sisters and my mother on the way to church and on the, at church on the way to come home. I remember that we weren't allowed to listen to secular music. We weren't allowed to watch TV on Sunday. We ate fish on Good Friday because that's in the Bible, right? <laughs> and so my experience of growing up was this thing about trying to sift what they told me about God was actually in the Bible and what wasn't. But these are, these are fond memories. I, as a kid, up to the age of, I think it was seven, shared their bedroom 
And so when you share your parents' bedroom, you see things, you, you hear things. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a complete setup. <laughs> that's a setup. Because the things I saw and heard were them praying to God. I have a very clear memory of my father always on his knees by the bed with his Bible open and praying, and my mother the same thing. And they told us about God and about Jesus, the Son of God, and their faith was in God and their faith was in the God the Bible speaks of. When we ask ourselves, what is the Bible? Who has one with them? If you need one, if you want to hold a physical one, we have lots of these here. Just raise your hand, keep your hand raised, and someone from the rear will come and bring one of these to you. If there's anyone close, we can get you. I was ready for you this week, Chanel. <laughs> what is the Bible? You think about it. It's a collection of stories about people's relationships with God, right? God's relationship with his people, his care for them, what they got right, what they got wrong, how they heard from him. If you think about that, that's what the Old Testament is. That's what the New Testament is. The New Testament writers had no New Testament. They were reading the Old Testament. And if it carried on and if we continue to write our own stories about our own experiences of God, they would be like the continuing Bible, living stories of people walking with God. But if we have a Bible and we don't get the point of the Bible, we, we make a mistake. And so one of the things that I want to talk about is the point of the Bible very briefly. 2 Timothy 3, 14, 15 says this, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Everybody say wise for salvation. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. If you think about that, that's the purpose of the Bible. For salvation, which is telling us that the purpose of the Scriptures is to save us from something to something. How? Through faith in who? in Christ Jesus, and to make us wise for that. To make us wise for that. So when we read the Bible, it's not just about memorizing. It's not understanding, just about understanding the order that the book's coming or how to find a particular minor prophet. It's in order to make us wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And you think about salvation, it's wisdom to help us find our way to salvation, to guide us there, to keep us there, and more importantly, to prepare us for what that actually means. And that also means guiding us through the inevitability of death. So, of course, that means the Bible does talk about death, right? How many of you have heard sermons about death other than at funerals? A few of us. I remember one of the most encouraging things to me when my father died in 2013 was a sermon that I'd heard preached about death and eternity. Um, so important to me that I remember I uploaded it to um, Dropbox so that anytime anyone died, I could send them the link because it was encouraging to me just to hear some of the things that the Scripture says about death. What is the wisdom of the Bible about death? How does it speak to us? Importantly, how does it speak to us today in the midst of so much of it? If you have a Bible, could you turn, please, to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. 
First Thessalonians 4, verse 13. And that begins with these words, I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brothers, sisters, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Interesting choice of words. Lest you sorrow, lest you grieve as others who have no hope. And the scripture continues in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And the last words, verse 18, are these, therefore comfort one another with these words. How often has anybody read that passage of scripture to you? Often? You see, it's interesting. You don't have many passages of scripture that end with the phrase, therefore comfort one another with these words. Therefore, when you see people in need of comfort, read this to them. When you see people in need of comfort, tell them this. Tell them this because it's words, they're words that are meant to comfort us. They're words that tell us that those of us who are alive are in a worse place when Jesus comes back because the dead in Christ rise what? First. And so somehow they've been flipped into this order of precedence to greet Jesus before we meet Jesus if we're still alive when he returns. That's the full extent of that passage. But what else does the Bible tell us about death? Well, here's the first thing. It tells us this, that in the presence of Jesus, death becomes sleep. That passage we just read, there's no mention of the phrase death. In the presence of Jesus, death becomes sleep. Lazarus dies. The people say he's dead. Jesus says, no, he's just sleeping. At the home of the ruler, when that little girl dies, the people say she's died. Jesus says, no, she's just sleeping. The people misunderstand it. Some ridicule him and say he doesn't know what he's talking about until he raises them to life again. And then they realize that in the presence of Jesus, death is indeed sleep. And it's interesting, when you switch the word death for sleep, what does it do for our minds? It tells us something about what death is. Do you fear going to sleep every night? How many of you are afraid to go to sleep every night? Not a single person here. When you sleep, is it a pleasant experience? Do you dream? Do you rest? Are you refreshed? Do you wake again every time you sleep? The Bible is trying to tell us something about death, that death as sleep in Jesus' presence is about waking again. It's about a pleasant experience when you're dead. Even though the people who aren't asleep with you miss you, and life goes on without you, for the person who sleeps, Jesus is telling us, in my presence, see death as temporary, as sleep. The second thing the Bible tells us is that our earthly bodies are like tents, temporary. Even if you've got the most physically perfect body in the whole world, and there's lots of those here, and you can run sub two hour marathons and bench press 
450 pounds and squat 650 pounds and so on and so forth. These are tents. They're temporary, right? We know it. The scripture calls them jars of clay. If you think the scripture calling our earthly bodies jars of clay is telling us that somehow clay is something that's perishable. We're not told that we have the treasure of God, the goodness, the glory of God in these containers that are to last forever. They're not told, we're not told they're made of gold. We're not told they're made of silver, things that last forever. We're told that they are jars of clay, which tells us that they're light tents, which tells us that they're temporary. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2, it says this, we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have another one, a building from God, a house not made with hands that is what? Eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan. How many of you groan in your bodies? How many of you got achy arms and knees and backs and wrists and other ailments that you're fed up of and you hate that might not get better? What's that body telling you? Is that this isn't it? This is a temporary thing. Even if you want to stare in a mirror at your perfect physical specimen of a body, right? You go look at it again in another 40 years. And in another 40 years, by the grace of God. And I guarantee you're going to be like, I don't know what's going on here. Because <laughs> inside, I feel as if, and this is what us guys do when we get on sports fields, we act like our 18-year-old selves. And we throw footballs and we dare dodge and we do things and then we, for the next week, <laughs> right? <laughs> the tent is telling you, seriously, guys, it's temporary. It's temporary. It's only got so many years in it. Take care of it, which is why we're called. The scripture says that godly exercise profits, but spiritual exercise more. It's telling us that work out, do the best you can with what you have so that it lasts you for as long as God intends you for it to last so that you're not bringing ailments and injuries onto yourself that you could have dealt with by just working out a little more, just eating a little better. The sense of the body as the temple, the place that the Holy Spirit dwells in. The third thing the Bible tells us is that God prepares us to depart these earthly tents. That's what that experience of groaning is. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Think about that. Those of us who are still in the body are absent from the Lord. A home in the body, absent from the Lord, but we are confident, yes, well pleased instead to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. First time I heard this, I was astonished. I'm thinking, hang on a sec. So the second that my soul, my spirit leaves this earthly body and present with Jesus, what immediately? What right away? There's not 2,000, 4,000, 8,000 years to wait. Hang on a sec, let's think about sleep. When you're asleep, does it feel like you've been asleep for 12 hours? It doesn't, does it? It feels like just that. You close your eyes, you wake up, you have no idea how long you've been asleep. Do you think death is just like that? Do you think that's another reason that Jesus reinvents death with the term sleep? To be present in the body, absent from Christ. Absent from the body, present with Christ. Jesus to the thief on the cross, not the one who is mocking him, but the other one. When he says, remember me when, I come into your, when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, you'll be with me in 
six million years. Does assuredly I say to you will be with me in paradise when? Today. This immediacy, this sense of immediacy that is hope, isn't it? For the one dying, hope for ourselves. These are things we have to remember because if Jesus doesn't come again, every one of us in this room, even you young people who think that death is not coming, right? And it's hard to talk to young kids about death because when I was your age, I'm like, get the heck out of here, old man. I don't want to hear about it, right? Seriously, you can look at me. You can sort of say that inside your head. <laughs> because I'm never going to die. I'm going to live forever. Are we? Yes, in eternity with Jesus. Next thing the Bible tells us is this. Life here is okay. Life with Jesus is much better. I think we get this bit wrong as Christians. We get this absolutely wrong as Christians. We model to the world that this earthly experience and the things that we accumulate in this world, the things that we love and we spend our time accumulating and going after and building up and building up and storing up and working hard to get and then getting in debt to keep and then we work because we're in debt and if we don't stop, we're going to lose the things that we can't take with us when we die. And we model that to the world and so the world thinks, Christians, if you really believe that eternity with Jesus is better, why do you live like that? Why do you live like these are permanent bodies that somehow they're going to last forever, that the things you get, you're going to take with you into the grave. Instead, the scripture says, store treasure up where? On earth? No, in heaven. So when the church becomes a bunch of folks who are storing up treasure in heaven and we're sowing to heaven and we're sowing to the eternal and we're sowing to the place that thieves can't steal and moths can't come in and destroy, we're getting a sense of, of the importance and the priority that we should have. Paul says in Philippians 1 verses 21 to 23, and look at this. This is Paul who's, who maybe was the one that saw into the heavens and saw things that were unimaginable and hard to describe. He says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. To remain here is Christ. In verse 24, it says, and it's, help, and it's helpful for you. So he's waking up every day and saying, for me to be alive today May Christ's purpose prevail. May Christ's purpose matter. And if I stay here today, then may it be for your good too. How many of you wake up and say that? If I live this day, if I live another day, I thank God for the people that are still here who got in car wrecks in the last couple of weeks. The gentleman back there working on the, on the video in a car wreck a couple of weeks ago, the, right the day after the, the midweek prayer meeting. Hit on the side, T-boned at 60 miles an hour by a guy in a stolen car. His truck flips three, four times. Thank you. All right. When you see the truck, there's this much left of space to be in. And he got up and walked out of it. I thank God for his protection and his, and, and, and his care for us. None of us know that that's not around the corner for us. But our prayer is, God, if I live this day, if I live another day, if I live another 10 years, may it be for Christ's purpose. May it be for the purposes of my brothers and sisters and for the world. But if not, Paul says, to die is gain. To die is gain. How can we say that? That means when we add up the sum of all things, gain, a good thing to die. Christians, is this our mindset? For I'm hard-pressed, Paul says, between the two. <laughs> now, this is a man living in jail. 
It's a man threatened with death every day. I think the jailers taught him this is your day to die today, Paul. It's your day to die today. Sometimes you speak to people towards the end of their lives and they say, how much more is this? God, I'm ready. I don't want to suffer anymore. Again, in the sense of the reality, the tangible nature of heaven. God, I don't want to ache and be ill and sick and have tubes in me and be fed by people and all these other things, whatever it means. But even if our life experience doesn't come to that, and God willing may not be that for any of us. But even just our ordinary lives, when you wake up in the morning, for me to live Christ, the good of my brothers, the good of my sisters, the good of the world, otherwise God take me home. Because to be with you is so much better than here. Next thing the Bible tells us this is resurrection bodies are better than these ones. Everybody praise God. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15 says, the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. Think how much your body dishonors you. Think about your worst toilet experience. <laughs> Film it. Put it on camera. Dishonor. Even to yourself. Right? Anything honoring about these bodies? Even those of us, those of you, not us, I mean, not join myself in this, who work out seven days a week and have bodies that people want to film and put on Instagram. It happens at the gym the whole time. It's a young people thing. Do you guys do this? I'm always in a room with, there's a mirror, and there's some young guy comes in and lifts his shirt up, and he's doing that ab thing, <laughs> doing the ab photo and posting it and hoping that someone sees it and 4,000 likes, the reason to work out more. It's nonsense, isn't it? If we had a heavenly body, those would be something to take photos of, right? The scripture's telling us that corruption is raised in, corru in corruption, so sown, that means that somehow we're planted, and when we're planted in the ground, and we're raised in, 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 in corruption, it's better than it was when it went in. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness. Everybody who's got a body is weak, raise your hand and acknowledge it. It is raised in power, weakness for power. It's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Mortality becomes immortality. Presence of Jesus, death becomes sleep. Our earthly bodies are like tents. God prepares us to depart these earthly tents. Life here is okay, but life with Jesus is so much better. And resurrection bodies are better. And here's the big one. Because of Jesus, resurrection is guaranteed. Hallelujah. Jesus, John 11, 25 to 26 says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And the resurrection and the life. Hear those words today. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Elsewhere in the scriptures, a little bit towards the end of the book that we have assembled in 
the books that are in order, ending with the book of Revelation, Revelation 21.4, right before the end of the scriptures. It says this, God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. But today there are still tears and sorrow and loss and grieving and sadness. Those things haven't passed away yet. And so as we live in the present, as we live on earth, as we live in the midst of the reality that death still has a sting, you have to fill your hearts with the hope that is packed into Scripture. Because otherwise what happens is this, is that we grieve and 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 there's nothing that comes and says, as the Scripture says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you just grieve out of balance with the things that God has given us to tell us the life with him is better. To be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. These bodies, earthly bodies, are tense. God is preparing us to depart these tents. Our resurrection bodies are better, and resurrection because of Jesus is guaranteed. Does it make the grief go away? It just doesn't do that. It's not magic like that. Sometimes one of the problems we have is that we try and make it work like that. But I want to offer you the hope that is in the scripture. This is kind of what I said twice at my mother's funeral. I had to go to a memorial in Jamaica and say this, <laughs> um, and to the funeral in London and say it again. And the weird thing was it was because my sisters asked me to. I don't even know if one of them still believes in the Lord. She was baptized years ago and don't really know where she is, but somehow the four of them came together and said that we want you to talk about the heritage of faith that our parents left us at the funeral. We want you to talk, if you can, through tears. It's always irritating when someone brings you tissues while you're preaching and you're choking up and you just doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It's okay to cry, right? Don't try and hold the tears back. Really don't. But I'm offering you the hope that's in the scripture that we could together, those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, can look forward to the day he returns and the day the heavenly trumpet sounds and the dead rise before anyone who's still alive and those who are alive get jealous because they see the dead come out the graves in these resurrection bodies and they're like, what the... And they rise to be with Jesus. And it says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. What's the twinkling of an eye? Someone twinkle your eyes. That quick? It says in that moment, death is swallowed up in victory. And then together, we will be able to say, oh death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? Your sting that plagued us all the years of our lives. 
Your sting that plagued us when our daughters died, our friends died, our loved ones died, our husbands died, when we ourselves experienced the pain of approaching death and the things that we feared because we were approaching death and the, all those horrible things that hurt. Where is your sting now? In faith, my brothers, my sisters, as hard as it is, can we look forward to that day and comfort one another with these words? You know, it's funny because there's a picture of the presence of God in the scriptures that God in the book of Genesis says the spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep, whatever that means. And there's a point in the Old Testament, the presence of God comes to inhabit a tabernacle that is built with human hands, according to a pattern shown Moses on the mountain, and God's presence comes and fills the tabernacle. And if you move a little further on in the, New Test- in the Old Testament, you see that the presence of God inhabits a, a temple, also built with human hands. A temple that David gets the sense of the designs for, and his son Solomon builds. And the presence of God fills the tabernacle. It says on the day that they're dedicating it, they go in there and they've got their, their set list in planning center, Angie in worship, and all the musicians are lined up and they've rehearsed for six weeks. And just as they play the first note, The presence of God fills the place and they can't play the second note. God's presence inhabits his temple. When you come to the New Testament, you go through these years of the temple being destroyed and Jesus begins to speak these weird words. He says, destroy this temple and I rebuild it in three days. And they turn to him and say, what are you talking about, fool? Kind of, right? Because you can't surely rebuild the temple that took Solomon all these years to build in three days. The temple that's rebuilt even after exile, you can't rebuild that. There's actually no evidence of the temple that they built after exile ever having the presence of God in it. Wonder why that is. Because the presence of God in the temple that Jesus is speaking about is what? The temple of his body. Destroy this temple, he's saying. And I will be rebuilding in three days. He's speaking about his death and his resurrection in three days. But where is the presence of God now? Who is the temple? We are the temple built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Jesus. You are the temple. You are the temple. The temple is not just Grace Merritt. It's not even the Grace family. It's not every church living today. It's every church of all time in all places. And so it comes to this. How is comfort then ministered? Do we just pray, Jesus, comfort them? No. We do it. You do it. This room is filled with people who've been ministers of comfort through difficulty and pain, whether it's presence or phone calls or trips to hospital or whatever else, or whatever else it's been. Not absence, but presence. And so still to this day, when the scripture says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, the magic of the comfort. Everybody raise your own hands up in the air. Take ownership. Take responsibility. The comfort's in these hands that dial a number, that drive a car somewhere, that hug someone, that hold them for longer than COVID said you should do. But you don't care. You might put a mask on to do it, 
or you just do it anyway. And you trust that God's going to work it out. Because if you die, it's better to be with him. Whatever you need to do, be comfort to one another. Don't leave it to the Lord. I was asking the Lord this week, just, Lord, how does this work? Where are you? Here. And in the same way, there's a woman who once took hold of the hem of Jesus' garment and found her healing. In the pull, the closeness, the proximity, it's here for you all. I praise God for this family. He wants to be without family. I hope that the church is better family to you than your own family. There was a time that I used to say to Ali and Meredith and Melissa and Angie, I've got four better sisters here. <laughs> but now my sisters are getting on, so I'm sorry it's just changed again. <laughs> Until they stop getting on again. Then, welcome back again, the four of you. <laughs> I could have eight, right? Actually, more than eight. More than eight. And I regularly say these, I use these words deliberately. You are my brothers and sisters. The scripture says if you leave lands and houses and family, you will never fail to find land and houses and family. Anna and I left the UK. You are our family. Other people are your family. Look across the row. This is your family. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me end with this, um, Angie and um, Elise, Rachel, please. Before the service in the thing we call the first service, which is the prayer meeting, that you're all welcome to, seriously, if you like to pray, even if you don't like to pray, you can come in at about 9.45 um, and join people who are just praying for what's about to happen. Some people walk the aisles, the rows, Pray for who's going to be sitting there. People share specific things. The prayer team have been praying since nine outside together or sometimes in the conference room have a sense of some words that they have that God is sharing. And one of them today was from John 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I want to extend an invitation to you today. To come to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you need to come to Jesus because all the things we've been speaking about in terms of resurrection being guaranteed and heavenly bodies is a thing that God has promised for those who believe in the one he sent whose name is Jesus if you don't know him you need to know him you need to ask him to forgive your sins you know ask him to fill your heart with his life and his love you know ask him to lead you every step of the rest of your life into the things that he purposed for you from before the beginning of time, things good for you, things important for the world, and things that matter to him also. But the invitation is also for you if you need comfort, if you're grieving, if life is too hard, if life is difficult, if the world is 
close to defeating you, if you can't go on a minute more, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And the weird thing is that the intangible is that come to Jesus where? Where do we do that? Well, I'm going to make it easy for you today. I'm going to ask the prayer team, um, the elders, board, spouses of the board, come stand with me here, please. If you're a member of the prayer team, if you can, you don't have to. If you're a board member, if you're able, with your spouse, come stand with me here. Nothing special about any of these folks. But I want you to see them as representing the Lord Jesus Christ this day. Jesus has come to me, and as, as, um, as Cecile was saying this earlier, I remember having a real clear sense that the invitation is to people in whom is the Spirit of God, who can lay hands, who can pray. There are other members of the prayer team who should be up here. Thank you. And if we're going to stand up here on our own, we're just going to have our own prayer party. We're going to turn and pray for one another, and we're the only ones that are going to get blessed this morning. But if you want comfort, come find it in the prayer of someone here. Take communion and recognize that the body of Jesus, broken, has been reformed in his church. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. We don't come to any human being. We come in faith. We come, Lord, as those who mourn, as those who grieve, as those who hurt, as those who need healing, as those who need wholeness, as those who need deliverance, as those who just want a touch from heaven. That we believe, God, in faith, God, you will minister to us, to those, Lord, represented here in our presence, in front of us, Lord. Give us faith in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.